Welcome back to PedScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Al Shanklin, a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at PedScript? Absolutely. PedScript is an educational PICU podcast. We are here to find the best bedside teaching spiels available and put them in the podcast apps for you. Zach, who are we talking with today? Today, we are very excited to be sitting back down with Erin Gordon. Dr. Gordon is a cardiac intensivist here in Dallas. She introduces us to a family who she's worked with in the past being a primary intensivist for their child. And we detail just how impactful a primary intensivist can be for that physician-family relationship, improving communication, and overall improving the clinical care provided to this family who are going through a very traumatic experience with their child in the ICU. Yes, it was so impactful to hear Megan and Ross Manias share with us about their daughter, Mila. Let's get right to the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. We are so excited today to be sitting back down with Dr. Aaron Gordon and also Megan and Ross Manias. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Thank you. So Megan and Ross, so great to have you here. To get things started, will you please share your story with us? Sure. Megan, why don't you uh, tell <laughs> it? Sounds good. Um, our uh, daughter, Mila, um, she was born November 23rd of 2021. And that day, we learned that she had a lot of unknown and unforeseen congenital health anomalies. So that required her to spend essentially her whole life in whether it was the NICU or the cardiac ICU, but for 98 days, she uh, stayed in the hospital. And so um, throughout that time, we learned that she had situs inversus, dextrocardia, uh, one kidney, liver failure, heart failure, kidney failure. That's right. <laughs> um, and lots of things that it, prolonged her stay. The issues kept arriving. Mm-hmm. So It wasn't a situation where Mila was born and whisked away to the NICU and they came back with a diagnosis Mm -hmm. that listed all of her issues. Um, It was a lot of up and downs. So we would find one thing and it would evolve into, okay, well, what's the best case? What's the worst case? And we would fall somewhere in the middle and we would be making progress on that. Then we would find another thing best case, worst case, fall in the middle, find another thing and another thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that took us to two different hospitals. The first couple months she was at Med City, And then when we realized she was going to need to have a second surgery, potentially looking at her liver biopsy stuff, that's when we got to Children's where she ended up on the cardiac ICU for the last three months or last month. Sorry. Yeah. And that was a, that was a big learning process for us as well, because One thing we learned is that, you know, if there are facilities that are world-renowned in your area, you want to try to get to those as quick as possible. And additionally, insurance plays a factor in these situations. And so the the first NICU you request to be sent to, you can't just request to go to another NICU if they don't have everything mm-hmm. that you need at that NICU. And so the reason why I reference if you have a world-class facility is not because the first NICU we went to was insufficient in any way. It was an outstanding NICU. But with Mila, there were so many issues that were unknown. Places like Children's Medical Center actually had the subspecialties mm-hmm. that could address everything. And the way we were able to get Mila transferred to children's medical uh, NICU was because of her liver specialty. The NICU we were at did not have a specialist there. And if you are needing to transfer somewhere where if, if the current place you're in doesn't have a level of care that your baby needs, our insurance would cover that transfer to go to the next place with the highest level of care. However, if we'd known from the get-go what Children's Medical had to offer, then we probably would have just had Mila moved here originally. And that would have also alleviated some of the stress of the uh, movement and also the transport for Mila. Transport's kind of a delicate process, and you don't want to put these uh, little ones through anything more than what you have to. Sure. I can't imagine the fear and the unknown that comes from Mila, your baby's born, all mm-hmm. the joy that comes with that. 
And then all of a sudden you're learning about these new diagnoses and maybe you feel like you don't have access to all the resources you Mm -hmm. have. And and then all of a sudden you're trying to figure out the logistics. How do Mm -hmm. I get insurance to cover this transfer? Gosh, I can't imagine that. Yeah. Will you tell us what it's like as you move through all these transitions and the issues that might arise with communication between Mm -hmm. physicians and medical teams as you're bouncing between ICUs? I'll I'll start with that one. (laughs) Um, So... One, th- one of the things that was outstanding about the NICU that we were at before we got to Children's Medical Center was that the physician you were assigned upon arrival was the physician you had the entire time you were there, with the exception of when that physician went on vacation and then you were assigned someone else for a few weeks. So this consistency was very beneficial for us. Um, it would be... But one thing that was not the same regularly was the nurse staffing. And that became an issue. I think a lot of the babies that have the level of issues that require them to be in a NICU for 98 days, they're not a one-size-fit-all situation. So the nurses have essentially a checklist that they need to adhere to. And all patients fit in that box when you're a new nurse. Mila, there were certain medications that needed to be administered to her. And if you administered them in one way, she was very comfortable with it. She could sleep. She could take her food. If you administered it in a different way, it would give her reflux. Uh, She may not gain weight. She may have watery stools because of it. And on the one hand, I think one thought is like, well, what's the big deal? A few watery stools, a few this, a few that. But in reality, just to gain weight was a major accomplishment for Mila. Like, it wasn't like she's not putting on weight fast enough. It was like, if she doesn't gain weight, she's going to die. And there's other things along that line with the medications and other aspects where she had developed something on the side of her neck where it was difficult for her to turn her head one way. So she needed to be moved kind of regularly. And if she didn't get moved often enough that would get worse. And it's something that condition can calcify and actually require a surgery later. So in these special cases that are so delicate where they're just kind of clinging to life, consistency with physician and consistency with the nursing care is a very big deal. Ways that we address that, we would create checklists for the nursing staff, and we would post those right in front of Mila. So just writing it on the whiteboard in the room when they come in, we found was not sufficient. It had to be in their face, front of mind. Also, it felt very awkward for us to explain to them how they needed to do their job with Mila, but we found that that was in Mila's best interest. And Although it was uncomfortable for us, we regularly did it. An obstacle that we encountered with the hospitals is as Mila, Mila was adorable and Mila was special and staff got attached to her. And as Mila's condition worsened, from our perspective, it became difficult for people to treat her because they were getting attached to her. And as time went on, it appeared to us that people wouldn't want to be on our care team. Because they could, t- we couldn't tell because we were the parents, but they could tell that Mila probably wasn't going to make it. And it takes a very unique person to be willing to sign up to become attached to someone who they know is, is not going to make it. And that was very uh, difficult for us because we would find nurses that knew exactly what to do, who were fantastic. And we would request to have them over and over again. And we wouldn't always get them. And No one told us why. I'm sure there's reasons. And you can't, you don't want to make someone do something they don't want to do. So we understood. But from the parent's perspective, which, you know, people might not know that that exists or that that really matters when they're trying to decide what's best for me. It really helps when a nurse or a doctor is willing to undergo the stress that they're going to undergo And they're not getting paid any extra, and they're not getting any extra benefits to treat my child. But because they're the best one for the job, for them to do it, that was something that we really appreciated it. And it was somewhat unique. We didn't find a ton of nurses that would do that. And that is one of the things that established such a strong bond between us and Dr. Gordon. 
And so, Megan, please fill in the many, many <laughs> things that I left out. I know I just spoke forever <laughs> on this, good. but please. Yeah, I feel like in the beginning as a first-time parent and your entire world being flipped upside down, you know, like nothing what you anticipated is happening. And so you show up at this hospital fresh out of surgery uh, with your baby in the hospital and you, I've never been more insecure or lacking confidence in my entire life because you're like, I can't fix this. I'm supposed to be able to take my baby home and take care of her and make her better and protect her from all of this. And then you show up and you become reliant on the medical team to tell you what to do because not only did I not know how to heal Mila, but I didn't know how to hold her properly. I wasn't comfortable picking her up. I wasn't comfortable doing any of these things. And so even those simple tasks, you turn to your care team to tell you, hey, it's okay to pick her up. And and I will be honest when I say for a long time, no one told me that. So there were a few days that I didn't hold her and uh, I didn't get to do the motherly things that you should be able to do right after you have a baby. And so you put a lot of confidence in your nursing staff and your doctors to help guide you through that as much as they're guiding you through the medical side of things and while they're trying to find remedies for all of her ailments. And so when a nurse would come in and take charge and say, pick up that baby, you know, do <laughs> hold her like this or feed her like this, those help to build confidence in becoming a parent and making decisions for your child as well. Cause you're like, oh, okay. I'm beginning to create that bond that isn't immediately created when you get to put your baby on your chest right away. You know, when they're taken away, it takes more time to build that bond. So I think that in the beginning, the doctor communication um, with the primary physician we had for Mila was better because he was very present and he was there pretty much every day. And we made sure that we were there shift changes too uh, with the nurses. So we communicated everything, but the nurse turnover happened a lot more frequently there. And we also didn't know that you could build a care team until maybe a month after we were there too. And that was kind of disappointing because we feel like that would have helped create a stronger bond or a connection. I don't know, just maybe get things moving a little bit quicker earlier on if we would have had that. Yeah. So some things I wanted to add to what Megan was saying or that I want you to know is that we, first off, Megan is very at home picking up babies. She picks up babies all the time. Anyone brings over a baby and Megan goes and grabs it. We took numerous parenting classes. We had stuffed animals and dolls at home prior to having Mila that resembled babies. So we practiced carrying them. So we were comfortable with picking up a baby, but an eight pound healthy baby versus a 5.9 or six pound. 4.9. 4.9, thank you, 4.9 baby with tubes and mm-hmm. temperature gauges and IVs, that is a totally different scenario. And very I think intimidating. It's very intimidating. And Megan made a really good point that those doctors that came in and or, or nurses that said, that baby needs to be on your chest right now. We're going to do it right now. We're not going to do it later. We're not going to do it when you feel like it. You're going to sit in the chair. You're going to take your shirt off. We're going to pull the curtain closed. And we're going to put this baby on your chest. And, and, you know, we, we had some really amazing stories about instances where Mila was in terrible shape, not doing well, setting off the monitors all the time. And, you know, the doctor came in like Dr. Gordon and said, you know, she needs to be held. And Mila then would spend eight hours in Megan's arms and not a beep, not a peep, nothing. But she would have never made it there because there were times that if Mila moved or was woken up because she was very sedated because she had major issues. If she woke up, then the sensors would go off. And and we were terrified because to mm-hmm. us, no noises, that was good. You know, just a nice heartbeat, a nice breathing, nice oxygenation numbers, all that stuff. Um, so we were just kind of hands off. And it was very beneficial when a doctor or a nurse would come in and say to pick up. Yeah. And hopefully most babies go home, right? But not every baby does. And so when you look back on things that you wish you could have done differently, there's not many things that we would change. I know that every choice that we made for Mila was always in her best interest, but there are times that I'm like, man, 
I wish I would have taken her outside sooner. And Dr. Gordon got us to take her outside and, you know, held her earlier or was able to understand it was okay to kiss her on the forehead or, you know, things like that where um, that communication, if you have a consistent care team and even an aggressive care team maybe that's like comfortable with telling you those things would be really helpful. So once we had all that stuff, it, it was kind of a game changer with our relationship with our daughter too. So yeah, the, the taking her outside was wonderful. So Dr. Gordon arranged that and we got to take meal outside and that was such a big deal. And I think that's another thing to drive home is like, we had some friends that had babies right around the same time as us. And like day three, they're wheeling their baby out of the hospital and the sunshine hits the baby for the first day, first time. And all they're thinking is, how do I get this baby from this door to the car seat safely so I can get them home and take care of them, right? They don't even realize how magical that is that sunshine is hitting that child's face. And for Mila, we did realize that and we took her outside and we got to spend um, a couple hours out there with her, Mm -hmm. which was really, it stands out in our mind as one of the great memories. I just remember Dr. Gordon being like, no, we'll make it happen. She's like, this thing, this is portable. We can get this to go. She's like messing with the cords and stuff. And she's like, yep, we just got to move this here and we'll get you outside. It was just so great. The advocacy was really helpful because I I would have been too scared to ask. Oh, You know, there's no way I was going to step on the nurse's toes and be like, I'm like, oh, it's okay. You know, we'll do it another day or whatever. But she's like, no, it's happening today. Yeah, I'm sure they were like, she wants to, us to take her where? <laughs> what is what is Dr. Gordon asking of us? <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, though, is not all babies are going home. Right. And if Mila hadn't gone outside, she would have never mm-hmm. been outside. Mm-hmm. And so that was very special for us. I think one thing to add to, as I met Megan and Ross, you know, when they first came to our institution, actually, I was the second physician to care for them and very different personality from the first physician. But we spoke a lot about the delivery of information and the delivery of bad news. And, you know, previously, you know, we've spoken about the importance of word choice to families that are grieving the lack of normalcy. But with Megan and Ross, the lesson learned was pivotal and it really stemmed around the geneticist in which, you know, we usually think of the geneticist as the genius who kind of comes around, right. And has seen things that we don't understand. And then of course we know things that they don't necessarily understand, but in the way that they deliver information, it's very different than we would deliver information as a critical care provider. And I think that stuck not only with them, but it stuck with me in that, you know, we often talk about just the, you know, typical difference between one face to another face, but how we deliver that information sticks with these families. And so Ross had some really funny stories about when pictures of babies would come in the U.S. mail and he would say, wow, that baby had hypertellerism and, you know, the chin was pointed and the nose was this and the nose was that. And I think in the moment, humor was the defense mechanism. But the lesson for me was that how we word things, you know, we don't really need to give all those details. We can basically say we have concern for X, Y, or Z, but the delivery of the words, I think, can certainly be different. And so I think that's definitely a lesson for our subspecialists who maybe don't see as much morbidity. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even the Delivery of potential diagnoses, too, I think was hard, um, especially once we first transferred to the second NICU. And I mean, everyone's rattling, right? Mila was a puzzle. So I understand there's excitement and everyone's trying to figure out what's going on, which you appreciate. You want people that care and are going to do just about everything in their power that they can. But there was also a lot of um, delivery of, you know, potential diagnoses and diseases and genetic disorders and stuff that we just kept hearing. And then they say not to Google it, but you are going to Google it. (laughs) You're going to check it out. And I tried to stay off of it, but I mean, then all of a sudden your mind spirals out and then they come back a couple days later and they're like, no, that's not it. So it's added stress into this already horrible cycle that you're in of trying to figure things out. So maybe even along the lines of Obviously, talking about those in your colleague circle, but maybe not in front of the parents unless it's an absolute known thing. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's certainly a balance because the number one priority is to heal this child, Mm -hmm. right? So if a parent has to get a little upset or hear Mm -hmm. some bad news, 
who cares as long as this child's getting healed. I understand that thought process. There is an aspect to it where I believe parent emotions transfer to the child to some extent. If the parent's holding the child and the parent is stressed, I believe the child picks up on it somehow, some way, and the child's stressed. And with these long-term NICU stays, these kids are hanging on by threads in some instances. And so definitely a sort of balance. Also just awareness on the doctor's part. So when we got into the NICU, Mila got transferred here, and they kind of triage. They've got a checklist. They want to know what's going on. The doctors come in. They come in their group. Everyone's throwing out ideas, right? And so the doctor was like talking to his colleagues. I'm pretty sure it's X. And X has like mortality in seven weeks, right? So they say it's X and then they move on to the next one, right? And, um, and I, I'm crying. And the, um, one of the nurses comes up and she's like, uh, why are you upset? And I said, oh, well, the doctor said he thinks it's X. Whether or not it is, the fact that it might be, that your child might be dying in seven weeks because they may have this thing. It's very unsettling. So the doctor came back and he apologized. And that was very nice, but he didn't need to apologize at all. I want him to be throwing out, I think it's X or whatever. But it showed me that he wasn't aware that if a parent hears you give a diagnosis that has a seven-week mortality, the parent's going to be crushed. And so I think just the general awareness But like I said, there's a balance because if Mila did have that, I want to know as early as possible so we can get her outside, so we can get photos with her, so we can bring a bed in that she can lay with us or whatever every minute because we've only got seven weeks with her. So I think Megan's right in that there's a balance. Maybe don't throw all those things out in front of the parents, but you also can't keep anything from them, Mm -hmm. Uh, even though it's going to upset them, you know, and that's where it's more of an art than a science, I think. So just to recount, you guys have given us so much great information. Megan, just thinking first, how important it is for the medical team to advocate for our families. Mm -hmm. A mom holding a patient who is critically ill, probably intubated, probably on some Mm -hmm. medicines to help their heart beat stronger, can be therapeutic. It can make their oxygen levels a little bit better, make the heart rate come down, make them more comfortable. But also, it's really important for those kids who maybe don't get the chance to go home, where we're really making the best of our time. So we're making memories with the time that we do have. And then Ross, hearing you speak, gosh, it feels like you're a quality initiative expert here in the hospital (laughs) talking about um, the importance of checklists and the importance of effective nursing handover. And gosh, that's so important. We know that core nursing teams are a big, big key driver for improved outcomes and then the PICU and the cardiac ICU and NICU, all the above. You talked a lot about how important it is us as physician teams to communicate effectively, but somewhat selectively. So we're not giving all the information, but we're giving enough to where we're communicating which direction the plan is going. I'd like for you guys to give us a few comments on potentially some issues that you may have seen with handover from week to week with the medical physician team. And then we'll use that as an opportunity to get into the primary intensivist program that you guys were enrolled in. Yeah, um, I think the extremes in personality can be hard. So you get comfortable with one personality and you start to build relationship and trust. And then a physician can come in that is equally as successful and smart and intelligent and capable, but the personality might not be one that you connect with quite as quickly or might upset you. (laughs) It might be a wrong day, a wrong moment. And then suddenly you kind of feel like you're starting over because they might have different ideas of what they think is best for your child. And it's hard to just instantly trust someone that you might not connect with as much as you do your other physician. So I struggled with that. I remember specifically one day a doctor came in and was just turning everything opposite and bedside manner was just different than what I had grown to know. And I was extremely upset. She was there on some of the hardest nights for Mila. And I'm sure that I blamed her. (laughs) It probably had nothing to do with this doctor. But I associated bad nights with this doctor. And so it turned out later, obviously, it was not that way. And she was doing everything that she could. Mila was just having hard nights. But I think that it just added to the stress of having to re-communicate everything 
while you're still learning because it changes every day. We would always say the morning and the night would never end. So you go in, maybe it's a good day and it ends on a bad day or it starts bad and it ends good. And so you're constantly on this roller coaster, but at least if you have consistency with someone that understands where your daughter's been and maybe where she's going, that helps. So I just think throwing in the, um, the change of another physician could be really hard and just add to the stress. Yeah, I think that there may be some parent education by the physician they're comfortable with that could be beneficial. Like, for example, if Dr. Gordon had said, hey, we're going to be switching physicians. I need you to write down everything that's unique to Mila. And I'm going to hand that over to this doctor, or we're going to put that on Mila's bedside when that doctor comes in. And you make sure when that doctor meets you for the first time, you go over everything on that list. Because I think people expect the doctor to be an expert on every single patient they're seeing. And depending on the workload, they're seeing a ton of patients. And in some instances, they're just trying to keep them alive until the doctor that is really familiar with that patient makes it back or things Mm -hmm. like that. So I think that educating the patients to take control of some of this, because another thing you know, doctors are held in such high regard. You think that they're... It's a giant binder. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yes. we do lots of things. That's like right. That. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out, actually. Sure. So yeah. I put together a binder, uh, and I would just capture different things and reports. And whenever they, I had the option of getting something printed out, uh, I'd print it, put it in here, and then we could reference it. And it actually saved us. It was so helpful. It saved Mila some sticks and some lab work because wow. I had the progression of certain things. After a while, you figure out like what markers the doctors are watching. And then you kind of figure out, okay, they're looking for this to trend in this direction or that direction. And so a low number may mean nothing to them. But if I have two months of data saying this is an outlier, then it might actually mean something more to them. But going back to what I was saying, I think that, you know, the patient's putting down everything that's unique to their child in writing because they're not going to remember all those bullet points when they're talking to the doctor. They're nervous, they're underslept, they're stressed, they need to be able to look at something and read. And then the other thing that would be beneficial is if the doctor that they were most comfortable with, like Dr. Gordon, said, hey, there's going to be another doctor here. This doctor is extremely smart and talented. They are known for this greatness, and I've heard from some people that they may not be great here, but I want you to know that this is a capable person that you should trust your child in something that would be personal preference for the doctor, but went a long way for us, is if the doctor communicated, I don't want you to text me, but if things are really, really bad, you can call me on my phone. And that meant a lot to us. And I don't know that we ever used it unless it was really, really bad. So I don't want physicians to think, I guess you kind of need to know your patient, right? Like you don't want to give your number out to someone that's going to be like, hey, her temperature is 98.5 and it was 98.4 yesterday. I get that because you're people too. I mean, you got to get a break. I understand that. But the peace of mind that that gave us where we always knew that if things go sideways, we can always call Dr. Gordon and we trust what Dr. Gordon has to say. I'd say another thing with the handover that was kind of unique, I think I'm remembering this correctly, but I believe one of the first times we had the discussions about the steps that would be put in place to save Mila's life if she, uh, if her heart stopped beating or something like that, I believe the first time we had that was with a different physician. So, The palliative care conversation? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the palliative care. So... Dr. Gordon had been our doctor, and then she stepped away, and another physician came in, and they wanted to have the palliative care conversation then. It would have been better if we'd had Dr. Gordon in the room with us, because it came across somewhat that, like, this doctor wasn't invested in Mila. It was like, yeah, this kid's not going to make it. Let's have this palliative care conversation or whatever. And, you know, that, that might have been their medical opinion, but that was very hard from our perspective to hear because we were seeing a different side of Mila. You know, we, we were seeing a side that was going to make it the whole, the whole time until the last two weeks, I think. That's when it started to set in that she was uh, not going to make it. So that was one aspect of the handover that could have been done different. Now, this is all perfect world stuff. Like, you know, Dr. Gordon's doing her office work or she's on vacation 
and the palliative care conversation has to happen, then it has to happen. And I'm sorry that it's not ideal and you didn't get your special doctor to get, have it with you. But, and, and I understand that. But if you're talking about what's the best way to do it, that's what I would recommend. I actually remember that day quite well because I actually was hanging out with Mila when they came back in and they were sad. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, I like immediately felt anger. And I'm like, what, you know, what happened? What's going on? You know, and that's when I learned that they had the beginnings of kind of end of life conversations. And so I, as if the physician who was her primary physician, that made me quite angry because that's a conversation I 100% need to be involved with, especially when I was not seeing it that way. Did Mila have a lot of hurdles to overcome? Absolutely. But in that moment and during that time frame, she wasn't, you know, I didn't think that we needed to have, if this happens, then that can happen because one, it was Ross and Megan and they're very attuned to Mila, as you have heard. And so there's no ideal situation. That's 100% of the time should happen. Those are difficult conversations and they should be had with the person you feel most connected with. Mm -hmm. So a moment that I wish that we could take back is that moment. Yeah. Really insightful as a trainee, hearing your story and hearing your perspective, Aaron, of course. We've already hinted at a couple of times the value of a primary intensivist, and we've detailed that on previous episodes. But Megan and Ross, from your perspective, will you, again, or maybe in addition, share how you feel like having a primary intensivist who can kind of provide the big picture message for your child's ICU state? Will you please detail for us what value you see that provides? Gosh, well, I mean, I think about even just sitting here today, you know, with you, like, we wouldn't be doing this without Dr. Gordon. So that in itself is a pretty big value, I think. I remember when Mila was in the NICU and we were there all day, every day. We started to go home at night because we were slowly falling apart when we would try to spend the night every night. And so at nighttime, I would wake up and I would not know if I was in the NICU or if I was at home. And I remember mentioning that to Dr. Gordon. And I think because of the relationship that we had built with her and the trust I built with her, she showed legitimate concern and was like, maybe you should talk to someone about this or maybe we should, you know, there was even advocacy for me as much as there was for my daughter and for Ross. You know, I feel like that was another really big value. And she would communicate that with other doctors saying, hey, these parents are capable to be in this conversation or, hey, they know their daughter really well, so you need to listen to what they have to say. You know, she encouraged us to be in rounds and to help, again, just build that confidence of making decisions for your daughter saying yes and no in certain situations. So I think that not only was she a huge advocate for Mila and everything that she went through, I truly believe she gave us more time with our daughter because she was such an advocate and would, she would say things and stick to them and not let anyone change it if we were on the same page with her. And that was really great. So I do believe that she put weeks and, and days on Mila's life. So I'm extremely thankful for that. I mean, we didn't know about the intensity of Mila's two heart diseases that she had until Dr. Gordon brought that to our attention and got a cardiac anesthesiologist in on her surgery and recommended she or required she recover on the cardiac ICU floor. So that was another huge value from her and specifically Mila's case. But I think there's also a huge benefit for the parents in having that structure and that consistency with the primary intensivist, knowing kind of when you go home at night that they're in good hands and she's also looking out for our health. She really was throughout the whole time. Like, and had she not maybe made us go home sometimes, <laughs> uh, we wouldn't have, and we wouldn't have been our best selves to be there for Mila. Yeah. Megan made a lot of really good points that just reminded me of a ton of things. So one participation in rounds and the importance of getting sleep. What we noticed is that it was in Mila's best interest whenever rounds came for us to be involved and also focused. The few nights that we spent here at the hospital or tried to trade off with shifts, 
we found ourselves not participating in rounds as much. Or when we did participate in rounds, it was kind of like, whatever you guys say, that's fine. However, when we were able to get rest, so our traditional shifts, Megan would arrive at the hospital between 8 and 9 a.m. And then I would arrive around 11. And then we would usually stay here until about 9 p.m., making sure that we we're here for the shift change and we give that information to the incoming group so that we could make sure that everything was understood for Mila to make it through the night. That was a very big thing. And the involvement with those rounds, I think really helped Mila. Um, Dr. Gordon absolutely extended Mila's life, Mila's heart conditions. I don't believe the severity of them was known. She had a, due to her liver issues, she had genetic liver issues. We didn't really know for sure what was going on. They thought that her biliary system might have been clogged. So she had a surgery to do a liver biopsy, and then they were going to conduct a Kasai procedure if necessary, if the biliary system was clogged. Mila probably would not have come out of that surgery alive had that happened at any other hospital that did not have this level of cardiac care for infants. So and for Dr. Gordon recognizing that exactly you know, because she was so early on seeing the trends of Mila's heart and I think had the comfortability of telling us, no, this is what we need to do. And again, the advocacy for it, because honestly, we had no idea. We just thought that she had mild hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or mild pulmonary valve stenosis. And then we learned that she had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as well. And you're like, what? Mm. You know, so just having that physician be so adamant about even where they recover or who's in the room during that surgery just made such a big difference. Sorry. No, thank you. And the last thing, I don't know if this is true or not, but it felt like the accountability that Dr. Gordon placed on the medical staff, it felt like it was very real. So we kind of had the feeling that the nurses knew that this, or the medical staff, I should say, knew that this was one of Dr. Gordon's patients. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if they weren't doing whatever Dr. Gordon wanted, they were going to hear about it. I don't know if that's how it works around here. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's her reputation. Um, but we felt very good that, that we had Dr. Gordon in our corner because of that. Because this was during COVID. There were huge staffing shortages. And so I don't know what staffing the hospital was able to put together, but I know it was an ideal situation. And because of that, it was very beneficial that Dr. Gordon was able to hold some individuals who maybe weren't as accountable or maybe weren't feeling it that day for them to lock it up and get it done. And so we really appreciated that. And just one more thing on the last day of Mila's life, I was able to reach out to Dr. Gordon because things did not seem right and the intuition was kicking in and a lot of fear was there. And I know that she was not working at the hospital that day, but she still came in and had the honest conversation with us about what was going on. And so for Mila's last day, she made it, no matter what, it is the worst day of your life. And Dr. Gordon helped us through it completely from beginning to end. Like you're just a floating thing there that day because you're, you know, you're supposed to bathe your baby and do all these stuff that you, I mean, you physically kind of can't even do it. And just to show the value and the connection that we had made with Dr. Gordon being our primary intensivist, you know, you're supposed to hand your baby to the chaplain, um, which, you know, it's at this point, Mila had passed. And so you're just supposed to hand them over and Dr. Gordon stepped in and was like, I'm going to take Mila down there for you. I still think of that, how that's the only way that could have gone for me. And to know that I made a connection that strongly with someone like Dr. Gordon, because of the relationship she allowed us to build with her and because she was always there and she was our primary intensivist for Mila, that made that a lot better than handing off to a chaplain I've never met. That's just going to take your daughter from you. I mean, I know at that point, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's no longer Mila. But 
that handoff is very sensitive and very tough. And that made it just a little, a little bit better too. Yeah, that was a, a huge impact. A huge, yeah. one of the biggest mm-hmm. probably, no, honestly. Yeah. That, you know, there's, when you think back on your life, there's only a handful of things that like stand out to you. And that's a memory that we'll never forget. In contrast, one of the not so great things that happened on Mila's last day is when when you lose a child, you have to be walked out by the chaplain. And it was very difficult because, so you've been in the NICU for 98 days. You've got books and stuffed animals and uh, swaddles and, and many things that you have brought into the hospital to try to make Mila as comfortable as possible. And after your child dies, you have to take all that out with you. And so they give you a red wagon and you put the stuff in it and you walk out. But when you walk out of the hospital with a red wagon full of baby stuff and a chaplain, everyone knows your child died. And everyone is polite, but it's a very lonely walk when everyone knows that you just lost your child. It would be beneficial for the parents if there was a way to get them to their car maybe that wasn't so obvious because the other patients, they don't know, but all the nurses I shared, there was a nurse in the elevator and everyone just kind of looked at the ground, you know, knowing what had happened. And so that was actually kind of difficult. That walk out was really hard and it, it didn't need to be. From my perspective, you know, there's people that you meet in life that you were just supposed to know. And this family is that to me. You know, we met through the life of their daughter, which was short but impactful for them and for me. And it's left me with a tremendous relationship. I mean, I love Megan and Ross like family. And the words that they're using are in so incredibly kind, but so them. I mean, the thanks shouldn't come to me. It's absolutely for you guys, because this is a friendship that will last forever. And I thank you guys for letting me be a part of her journey and your journey and your continued journey through, you know, creating a family, you know, that extends beyond Mila. So the primary intensivist role, as we've talked about before, means a lot to many different people. But when you do it right, in my eyes, I guess, taking on more than maybe what is expected, it feels so good in the end. Wow. Incredible story. It seems that some themes include advocacy. Primary intensivists can advocate for the patient. They can advocate for the parents to take advantage of the time that we do have. And also for the physician, it seems professionally, gosh, this is a way that you can you know, if perfectly appropriate, pour your heart into this patient and this family and reap a large amount of professional and personal satisfaction. I'm sure you see it the same way. I absolutely do. So as we kind of move to the last couple of questions here, Megan and Ross, I'd just like to know just a little bit about what life is like now. And maybe if you want to take this opportunity to share with us if there's additional comments or additional suggestions that as we as the medical providers can do for the next patient who's coming through the ICU, who's looking at a a really rough stay and families that are dealing with stuff that they're not quite sure they can get through. Yeah, um, I'll start on this one. So in the hospital, so you're going through a traumatic experience and you need to be in the best place you can be Because, like I alluded to before, I believe that these babies pick up on their parents' stress levels and and all those things. So, although it may not be a hard skill, necessarily, like we're not fixing Mila-specific problems, having someone for the parents to be able to talk to who has expertise in giving them mental help while they're here. Because they're going to be here for 12 hours a day for months and people have been here for years or a year at least that would be really beneficial there were individuals that kind of filled that role but it was one story that we had is that we were like yeah we want to talk to this person you know we really just feel like we just need someone to talk to and they came in and we were excited and we said okay so i'm feeling this i'm feeling that and they said yeah 
you guys should go to therapy. <laughs> and we were, and we I, that. I, we knew I, that. Yeah. Like, what, what are you? I know. And I asked Megan, I was like, did I misunderstand? Because I just unloaded all this stuff on this poor person. And I was like, did I misunderstand? I thought this was the therapy. Like, I thought that's what this person did is they came down here. We told them how messed up we were. And they were like, okay, uh, you can do some journaling exercises. You know, you guys should go for a walk and hold hands. But all I got was like, you need to go to therapy and you need to go to two different therapists. So it, so it wasn't even couples. So that was kind of like a shock because it was a shock. And then also it would have been really beneficial if we could have accessed some sort of that here, even if it would have been a separate service and we would needed to use our insurance to go to someone like that. But we were up here for 12 hours a day. We could have very easily, you know, packed our lunch. And instead of going to the cafeteria, we could have gone and saw a psychiatrist or a psychologist somewhere in the system yeah. um, for that hour. And I think that would have really helped us. That would have been beneficial. Mm-hmm. We actually do have a psychologist now within the Heart Center who she just started a couple of months back and she's quickly realizing she needs reinforcement, mm-hmm. I guess, because it's a, it's a real thing. As you know, you guys know, I always threw some evidence-based stuff out at you, like research shows that, you know, 50% of parents X, Y, and Z, but it's so incredibly real. And if we had that avenue for you guys while you were here, it would have been fantastic mm-hmm. because then you would have been able to stay or at least felt more mentally available when you felt so unable emotionally. Mm-hmm. So we are working on that, although we have a ways to go. It's a necessary resource that's certainly lacking at most institutions, unfortunately. Sure. And the intent, the reason I saw the benefit in it wasn't so that Megan and I would feel better about ourselves. The thought is that if you get the parents healthier, you're doing everything you can for the infant. But if you also get the parents healthier, maybe this infant gets healthier a little faster and you can clear up that space, get another infant in, things of that nature. And, and also when those parents go home with that infant, if they're in a better space, maybe that infant's less likely to come back to your hospital. Mm-hmm. And then I think your question was also related to like, how are we doing now that things have passed or now that Mila passed away and we've been at home for a while and things like that. So I know one thing that when we did get home, we did go to therapy. One thing that is a big struggle for, for me is that I wanted to get better quick. So I was doing all the things you're supposed to do to get better quick. I was going to the therapist. I was journaling. I was getting outside. I was working out. And the healing doesn't come nearly as fast as you would like it to. And I don't know, Megan, if you could speak to that as well. Would you agree? (laughs) Yeah, of course. I think one of the things that Ross and I talk about a lot is that we don't have any regrets of any choice that we made for Mila. I know that's not going to be the same for every parent that leaves the hospital without their baby. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you wish you could do differently. But when it came to her medical care, we said from day one, everything we do is going to be in the best interest of her. And that was supported throughout the entire process. And so that in itself lifts somewhat of a weight because I can't imagine bearing regret as well. So I'm very thankful for that. But you know, time doesn't heal all wounds. It really doesn't. Um, I think that you just grow around it and um, it'll always be there, grief with all of this. I mean, but to get to continue to share our daughter's story and to help other families is something that, again, not everybody will get the chance to do. So we're extremely grateful for that. And I think that that has been extremely impactful on our journey with all of it too. One thing that was super important to me was that people were going to continue to hear Mila's name because it's awesome. Mila Nix Manius is the cutest (laughs) name ever. And so I want people to continue to hear it. (laughs) But also, um, you know, you want your, you want your child to, to live on in one way or another. So getting to do things like this and having her impact other families and other babies is a really positive side of such a, a dark, um, hard thing to go through. Yeah, you were telling me, uh, you, or you were reminding me that this is the, today is the one year anniversary of uh, Mila's celebration of life. Mm-hmm. And just Mila sends us these kind of things where dates will just line up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that Megan said at Mila's 
celebration of life is that she wanted her name to continue to be said. And, you know, this is uh, a year an, later today. Yeah, I'm saying it wow. on a podcast, which she's going to go to many people. And that's really incredible. So that's absolutely yeah, there's very, very hard days. And then there's glimpses of, you know, hope and things there. So, yeah, the therapists were pretty accurate with how grief tends to ambush you. You know, you'll have like some good days and then just out of nowhere, you get hit with it. Another thing that we noticed is that it's not the actual date of anniversaries like Mila's death or things like that that get us. It's usually a few days before. We're not able to actually attribute it to it in the moment. You know, it's kind of like, man, I'm really feeling down lately. I really miss Mila. You know, I was thinking about this and Megan will feel it too. And it'll usually be a few days before, likely in some sort of anticipation of something that's coming up. Holiday so, or anniversary or something. I'm not just like hangry, you know, right, something right. else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a few days after too, we'll get you. But. Mm -hmm. So that is something that's, that's very real and is going to happen. It's not a linear process. It kind of comes and goes in waves. So Megan and Ross, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned how important it is for us to remember Mila's name and, and to know her story. And I'd like to hear more about how you're ensuring that lives on. Yeah, so um, when we were in the NICU, kind of early on, Mila was just in diapers and the hospital blankets and stuff. And I kept saving this stuff at home because I was like, well, when she gets home, we'll use the nice things. Should, well, we'll just wait. And you soon learn that it might be a while <laughs> um, before your baby goes home if they get to. And so I brought up tons of Mila's blankets and adorable outfits and hats and socks and everything to kind of make it feel a little bit more like home. And then we started getting gifted swaddles and things to change her bedding um, that would make her more comfortable too. And eventually she had a closet <laughs> full of stuff. And it was so great because the nurses would come in and would get so excited to dress her or change her bedding. And I mean, there's been so many times where I came in and I was like, oh, this person totally gets the vibe that I want Mila to be dressed in. And it was so sweet. And I know that she felt that love. Like when Ross mentioned this earlier, you know, when you're happy and joyful and you're holding a baby, like they're going to sense that and they're going to feel that. And so to have these nurses come in and get excited or only peep their head in to see her wardrobe was really fun and special. And so Around the holidays, so Mila was born right before Thanksgiving, and in honor of her first birthday, we wanted to do a NICU donation drive because I know not all babies get the opportunity or have the means of having fuzzy, cozy blankets and onesies. And you get the things that the hospital provides you, obviously, the basic care needs, but just having something that's special, um, which are a lot of things that we still hold on to. So we did a donation drive in honor of Mila for a few weeks to collect either monetary donations or actual item donations like blankets, onesies, books, toys, pacifiers, um, cute pacifiers, uh, and shoes and just everything that you could imagine. And it ended up being just wonderful. But uh, our hope was that families would get these items and there would be excitement and joy around such a hard time and uh, the baby would get to experience that love of being changed into something super soft and sweet because we were gifted things while we were here that are now some of our most cherished items because they honor the life that she had. So that was one of the ways that we've kind of helped to try and give back and say thank you for all that was given to us during the time that we spent in the hospital. Yeah, and we're also involved in an advisory board with the hospital where they, uh, I think it, it speaks a lot to the hospital where they are interested in the patient's perspective or the parent's perspective uh, as an advocacy potentially for um, future patients and things like that. So uh, we're working to do that as well so that people are able to see the other side of it that they don't normally get to hear from. Thank you for doing that. It's an incredible story, and I really appreciate you guys sharing that with me, but also very excited to share this with our listeners. I think almost every day as a physician, I need to be reminded, what is my Monday morning at work? 
these families' lives, and they're going to remember this every day. They're going to hold on to how I phrase things, how I word things, my body language, everything is so impactful for these patients and these families. Did you have something to add? I thought you may. No, okay. You always summarize yeah. so well, so there's not really much for me to add. Well, I have one question for you. Um, maybe for our trainees and our physician listeners, is there anything that you'd like to add as potential learning points as you think about this incredible relationship you have with this family and your experience taking care of Mila? I think, you know, as we've spoken about on previous podcast or on the previous podcast, I guess, I think the importance of learning the palliative care language is really important during the training process because critical care you know, many days where you, at the end of the day, you're feeling like it was a hard day mentally and emotionally. And I think going through that process with the family, having the right word choice and understanding the process is is really important. So for trainees, I think I would advocate that you spend extra time with the palliative care team if you have one at your institution. If not, seek it out on the internet because there are plenty of good resources available on the internet to kind of learn those, the word choice, communication and so on and so forth. I think personality has a lot to do with it. As I've stated before, the primary intensivist role is so important to me because I take on these children as my own, good or bad. You know, it may shorten my duration within critical care, but when I step to the bedside, that's someone's child. Um, and thinking about them any other way doesn't seem right mm-hmm. to me. And so, I take on the, the role with honor, and I am an incredible advocate for the patients and the families. And as Ross alluded to before, I think everyone knows when a patient is mine because I make it very clear, mm-hmm. um, and I make the expectations for their care very clear without overstepping the boundary on day-to-day medical care, but what's in the best interest of the patient. And I won't stop doing that ever because, again, I think of them as my own children so I think when you have the confidence to name drop your <laughs> primary physician, like that's a good feeling. I, you know, yeah. the, I think that you should have that pride in, in who is, is representing your child or who's advocating for your child. And we definitely had that. Yeah. And for people coming into the field, I think it's important, you know, in looking at Mila's story, Mila was very, very strong, but Mila had a recessive gene and they didn't know what that recessive gene did. And now they have some sort of an idea of what that gene did. Well, had Mila passed away even a few weeks earlier than she did, that discovery would not have been made. Like, because Dr. Gordon and the medical staff continued to care for Mila like she was their own child, and, and because Mila fought so hard, we were able to get the genetic workups done that weren't even on the radar a month prior. And it just seems that even though you may not save this patient by never giving up on this patient, you may make a discovery that is going to allow you to save many, many patients in the future. And that is what we hope to see for Mila. You know, I think that she would love to be able to contribute to saving uh, future babies' lives. And that is something that this hospital, Children's Medical Center, did. And so we're very grateful for that as well. Well, what an incredible message. I really appreciate you guys advocating for all the patients and families who maybe can't see things from the as big a picture as you guys are able to see. I think it's incredibly insightful uh, that you guys are able to communicate this so well. I want to give you guys the floor at least one last time. This is your opportunity to advocate for anything that you'd like, plug anything you like, or you can simply just reinforce a couple of key points from today's conversation. I'll go first. <laughs> um, surprise, surprise. Yeah, I know. Wrap right? it up. I know. I'll try, I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> it's not very easy for me. Um, so, from the patient's perspective, when you're going to have a baby, it would be beneficial just having an idea of what NICU you would want to send your baby to because when you get that news, it's very difficult. From the hospital's perspective, I like checklists. I don't know if it's a handout or what, but Megan had mentioned it earlier. Knowing that you could get a care team put together right away, that would be so beneficial because that was a large 
stressful aspect is, you know, we'd come in, we'd get a new nurse, you know, we found a few times where Mila had a, had a G-tube put in and feeding had gotten disconnected. And so her bed was soaked in food and she didn't get it. And it was extremely important because Mila was so underweight. And so then we didn't feel like we could leave. And you don't want to be in a position, especially in a NICU, where you don't feel like you can trust the level of care at the facility. And I don't know if this happened at this one or the previous one. So being able to have a medical staff that you trust and the way you trust it is by you getting to pick them. That was super beneficial for us. Yeah. I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, d- I feel like I was, get so on the um, like family or like mom mindset of stuff. Well, first I want to acknowledge that I know that it's a lot for a physician to pour everything that they have into a patient because that's a heavy weight to carry. You also have your own stuff going on in your person. But I also know that that's probably something you chose to take on when you knew which role you were going into. So I see both sides of that. I think that, um, sorry, I lost my job. It's not easy. Bringing in the bed at the end, how big of a deal? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's just a lot of options that you didn't know were there. Um, You know, one like the taking outside we, I remember one day we walked in and Mila's room was like a straight shot down the hallway. And you could see right after you got off the elevator and you turned the corner, you could see her. I just see this little thing bouncing. And I'm like, oh, did they move her into another room? And Mila's bouncing in this mama room. And that was her first time. You know, she was over two months old at this point. First time in like any kind of a chair like that out of her bed. Like these things that she got to experience that a lot of babies get right when they get home. And two months into her life, you know, she's experiencing this for the first time. So maybe knowing what options your baby has. Mila couldn't do tummy time. She couldn't do certain things that maybe other babies in the NICU get the opportunity to. So everything we did was very minimal, but also kind of game changers in your experience and some of the best memories that you have. You know, we only have three months worth of memories with her and seeing her in the Mamaru was like one of the best. Yeah, if, if we'd known like that that was an option, we would, because the so most of the Mamaru's were spoken for because mm-hmm. they didn't have a bunch of them. And one finally became available. Somehow Amila got it. And had we known though, I remember driving home being like, we would have brought a Mamaru yes. in yeah. day we one. We would have brought one, like, yeah. We, we didn't know what we could bring in or yes. anything like that. Yeah. Same thing as her stroller, you know, putting her in her stroller and even walking her around the unit. If, if your baby can't go outside, but is able to do that, just to know those things going into it would be really great. I'm kind of prepare you for that. That was along those lines. You're exactly right. So we built, um, with Dr. Gordon's help, we built kind of a routine into the day where with the dry erase marker on the door, we wrote like Mila's workout schedule and her walk time and all that. And we would go through and we would check off Mm -hmm. what we would do. And then Dr. Gordon would come in and be like, I see that the walk hasn't been checked off on, you know, let's let's get it, let's get it going, (laughs) you know? That was beneficial in that it took away some of the helplessness that the parents feel because we were able to contribute to Mila getting better. That was very beneficial to us. And also, I think it kind of like it helped us mentally knowing that that we were contributing and we would do Mila stretches. So we had those on there twice a day Mm -hmm. where we'd get her and stretch her legs and they taught us a little bit of baby massage you can do with baby oil. And so we did that. And those things actually meant a lot to us. And Megan had said earlier, the no regrets, that was something that going into it, we didn't know how it was going to end, but we knew that when everything was done, whether we had Mila or not, we were going to be able to look in the mirror and know that we had had done everything we could possibly do. Mm -hmm. And I'm so proud of us for doing that because we do not have any regrets. We we did everything. Yeah. And kind of going back to the encouragement of getting the baby out of the bed and into your arms whenever possible. I mean, there were multiple times that Mila was intubated. And so it's a lot. I know it's a lot to ask to get a baby out of the bed. But at the same time, when you have four people that are available to help do it and just scoot a chair forward and get the your daughter in your arms, you know, the day before Mila passed, I was able, I held her for nine hours straight. You know, we didn't move. And we got to watch Disney movies together and do things that just weren't going to be done otherwise. And so 
giving the parents those opportunities as many times as you can and really encouraging it, whether you have to put it on a list and make it as part of a schedule or give the parents the confidence to do it and say it's okay. Because I was scared. I was scared to hold her mm-hmm. intubate it. I didn't want her to be uncomfortable. My main thing was like, just leave her in bed because she'll grow. She'll get better. She'll sleep. But that's not what's in the best interest for her always. Sometimes, yeah, she did need to be left alone. <laughs> um, but so that was really great. And then the last day that we got to spend with Mila, you know, the bigger bed was really nice. I kind of wish we would have had that earlier. I wish <laughs> I wish we would have known if it would have been an option. I'm sure they're very rare to get. But um, the larger bed to get to lay next to her for the first time as a family, you know, was really special. And um, so, yeah. I think something we've talked about pre- on the previous podcast and just really as the literature is trying to guide us with the role of a primary intensivist, we often speak about it being assigned versus requested. And, you know, my standpoint has always been that it should be requested because there's a relationship that's built during that process. Um, and I think, again, this conversation really speaks to the importance of having the trust relationship with the family and the patient because it makes a huge difference and you know having it more organic than assigned and felt more duty like mm-hmm. i think is really important to the success of the program something we've also spoken about is the time frame you know so if you know a patient 7 days in is a patient that's going to be within the institution for some period of time and you've made a connection then waiting that hard and fast 14, 21, 28 days seems like maybe a waste of relationship building and communication and mm-hmm. trust building. So really just thinking through those processes as we move forward in our own program here, how can we be better for our families and offer some of these experiences earlier, knowing that we can yeah. do them safely, I think is really important. Um, because as you said earlier, the memories are not forgotten and they are long lasting and spoken about as though they were yesterday. So we can be certainly impactful and we need to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. We need to be more aware at the bedside of, of these lasting memories that the families have for what we do and maybe what we don't do at time. So I think the primary intensivist role for advocacy and trust formation, communication, just as with a primary nursing team is important. Yeah. Well, what an incredible story. I'm so thankful for Mila. I'm so thankful for you, Megan and Ross, for sharing your story. And thank you, thank you Aaron, for everything you're doing with our primary intensives program and advocating for all these families. Uh, I can't think of a, a better way to close this conversation. I just, again, really appreciate your time and very excited to share this with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedescriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedescrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.